Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 292, King in the North. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Bree, Brian, and Martine for signing up already. Perspective. How we understand any event comes down to what angle we're able to view it from. And the story of Athelstan has been no exception. On the one hand, it's easy to see Athelstan as one of the greatest kings in English history, one to place on our shelf of real-life legends, along with his grandfather. And that's for good reason. Much like Alfred, Athelstan was a larger-than-life figure. He wasn't content just to hold his throne and maintain the status quo. He strived to restructure the very foundations of his kingdom. And as luck would have it, his ambitions aligned with the cultural and political circumstances of his society. And that's critical, because if Athelstan had taken the throne of Wessex in the middle of the 7th century, there really would have been no way for him to build an imperium over the island, nor even exercise the same level of power that he held within the borders of Wessex. Athelstan had come along at exactly the right moment. Wessex and Mercia were in precisely the right cultural position for the implementation of what he had in mind. Carolingian methods of rule had been coming into Wessex for generations, and that had shifted the culture away from the old Anglo-Saxon notions of rule by consent and towards a divine right to rule, a right that was held by only one family, his family, and was passed down in a very specific manner. Furthermore, the ideas of power within the kingdom had been changing. Following the defeat of Guthrum, Alfred had ruled Wessex with an iron fist. Power consolidated firmly in the hands of the crown in ways that had never been seen before in Wessex. Alfred even stripped power and lands away from the clergy who had stood against him, again changing the balance of power within the kingdom and in favor of the crown. Furthermore, Alfred spent much of his reign shaping a new identity for his subjects, an identity that wasn't formed around clan, but around kingdom. And that wasn't a simple task, and cultural shifts like that take time. But slowly, very slowly, the inhabitants of southern Britain were starting to understand themselves as not just part of families or members of a village, but as members of a larger cultural group. And all of these things, the expansion of royal power, the reduction of ecclesiastical power, and the idea of being part of a single cultural group, were taken on and furthered by Alfred's son, Edward. Edward even styled himself as the king of the Anglo-Saxons, a cultural identity that was simultaneously new, but also invoked a shared past, something for them to reach back to and say, we've always been this. And through that, Edward was able to express his right to rule, not just over the West Saxons, but over any who were part of this cultural group, be they Mercians, East Anglians, or maybe even Northumbrians. And his wars, alongside his sister Athelflaed, brought many of those ambitions into reality. Generations of work had been done to turn an island of feuding, proud clans into a burgeoning collective identity. And this incredible gift had been handed down to Athelstan. And it was that gift that enabled Athelstan to truly embrace the idea of divine rule, 
which itself was an evolution of those Carolingian ideas that had been present in Wessex for generations, but had taken time to fully develop. It was also that cultural gift that allowed him to assert that the English, a group of people who were still just a vague idea two generations ago, were now a distinct group of people, and that group of people were destined to rule over lands beyond their own borders. Athelstan was a product of his culture and environment, and what made him successful was the fact that he was a key that fit a very particular cultural lock of his circumstances. But it's critical to remember that that lock is particular to his time, place, and social position. Athelstan and his ideas were particularly well-matched for where he was in history, and he was in the social position to be able to actually do something with those ambitions. Now, to be fair, he was also remarkably skilled in statecraft and leadership in general. He was a good leader, but we shouldn't forget the circumstances and position that he held. And it was through that, that at the Treaty of Amont, only three years into his reign, Athelstan was able to reveal his ultimate plan to be essentially an emperor. And he enacted that plan with remarkable speed. Suddenly, rival kings were reduced to mere members of his court. He became a king of kings. And for the people of Wessex and Mercia, in many ways, this was a golden age. They were experiencing a rapid expansion of wealth, power, and prosperity. Athelstan brought about wide-ranging reforms. He developed the economy. He bolstered their defenses. He showed a mastery of diplomacy that enabled him to position England at the center of European politics. He ushered in an era of peace that hadn't been seen in living memory. Looking at what he accomplished, one could easily say that Athelstan wasn't just the first king of England. He was one of the best kings of England. And judging by the writings of William of Malmesbury, and looking at the praise poem that I read last episode, which was from the Chronicle, you get a sense that that's how some people felt about him. But that brings us back to perspective. Because not everyone felt that way about him. We all know by now that he encountered a lot of opposition early in his rule. But the events following his death could give us a clue that this opposition may have followed him through his entire life and even beyond. Athelstan, the first king of England, the first of the House of Wessex to have established an empire of England, the man who had installed continental kings and commanded such respect that he was greeted as an emperor by major political figures of his age, was buried at Malmesbury Abbey in Wiltshire. And that's strange. You might expect that he would have been taken to New Minster. That was the religious house that had been planned by Alfred and completed by Edward. It formed the center of the religious cult of the House of Wessex. And there, Athelstan could have been laid to rest next to his grandfather Alfred, his grandmother Aleswitha, his father Edward, and his half-brother Elfweird. But he wasn't. Nor was he buried at the neighboring Old Minster, where the West Saxon kings of old were buried, dating all the way back to old King Chenwall. He was just buried at Malmesbury. Why? Well, there are a couple possibilities. One is that Athelstan was the person who made that choice. That, rather being buried by his father, who had sent him away, and who had chosen his younger brother over him, well, Athelstan, the first king of England, wanted to be buried by his cousins, who had fought by his side at Brunenburg, and he wanted to be buried at a location that he felt a special affinity for. And Malmesbury would have fit the bill for that. I mean, he had granted it generous endowments over the years. But the other possibility is that the choice of interment was made for Athelstan, 
possibly after his death, and that the city which had nearly blinded him and which housed a bishop who apparently refused to even be involved in his coronation never got over their disdain. Winchester may have outright refused to inter him. But whatever way you slice it, whether Athelstan was spurning Winchester, and Newminster in particular, or if Athelstan was the one being spurned, the underlying subtext here seems to be that the animosity between the king and his capital city continued throughout his reign, and even after his death. I mean, it's entirely possible that the powerful members of Winchester weren't able to openly express their disdain while Athelstan still held the crown. After all, he was an incredibly powerful ruler. But once he was dead, well, then they were able to make their final attack and bar him from taking his place among the pantheon of West Saxon rulers. It would have been a final revenge. But ultimately, why Athelstan was laid to rest beside his cousins at Malmesbury, rather than among his forebears, is a mystery that's yet to be answered. But the fact is that while Athelstan was revered at Malmesbury at the time that William was writing, he was still a controversial figure and many of those accomplishments that burnished his reign came with a cost that was being paid by others. William reminds us that Athelstan was a thunderbolt, a divine strike from God. And it wasn't just his biographer who saw that in him. Looking at how Athelstan was styled in his own charters, this was something that he believed himself. And like the God of the Old Testament, he too was full of wrath and fire. While his court was populated with kings, and while Mercia and Wessex were prospering, those who challenged Athelstan found their armies crushed, their cities butchered, their loved ones taken hostage, and their kingdoms seized. So while Malmesbury, Mercia, and parts of Wessex may have looked upon his reign fondly, the people who Athelstan dominated had a different view. What was divine right for Athelstan was something else entirely for the people he was marching against. For the Scots, the Cornish, and the Welsh, he wasn't a divine ruler. He was an aggressive, imperialistic force, and one that some of them had tried to curb and suffered for it greatly. And as for the people of Northumbria, and to a lesser extent East Anglia, Athelstan was a ruthless occupier. See, while the reigns of Alfred, Edward, and Athelstan were all working towards an idea that there was an identity that extended beyond your family, your village, and even the borders of your kingdom, the people who did live beyond those borders, well, they were working on a new idea of their own. Since the days of Alfred, a parallel cultural project had been developing in the region that we would come to know as the Dane Law. And the beginnings of this project aren't traced to Lindisfarne, nor are they traced to the arrival of the great heathen army. The start of this shift, the shift away from the old Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and towards the Dane Law, actually began roughly around the same time that Alfred took the throne of Wessex, in 871, because that's when Halfdan took control of Northumbria and began to share it out to his followers. So now, rather than a mobile army marching, fighting, and occasionally occupying royal holdings like Repton, instead, these Vikingers, raiders, and warriors had become settlers. And for those that lived around them, they were no longer enemies. They were neighbors. And then, shortly thereafter, in 877, Guthrum and his men acquired lands in Mercia, and then later acquired lands in East Anglia. And following his defeat at the Battle of Annington, Guthrum and Alfred established a boundary between Alfred's lands and the lands of the Danes. And through that agreement, 
about half of Mercia, pretty much all of Northumbria, and all of East Anglia were now formally recognized by treaty to be under the dominion of the Danes. And that would go on to have far-ranging impacts. This was more than simply the creation of a new political body. A new identity was being formed. And there was a great deal of integration that was happening in the area that we now call the Danelaw. Those Scandinavian settlers were converting, they were socializing, they were becoming part of the community. And so as Alfred and his successors were actively creating an identity in the south, in the north, another separate identity was being born. One that saw its roots not just with the Anglo-Saxons, but also with the Danes. They are the Anglo-Danish. Evidence of this transition can be found in place names, linguistics, art, and all manner of other cultural and archaeological remnants. The unique culture that formed out of this period left traces that could be seen and felt for hundreds of years. I mean, Snorri Sturluson, who was writing in the 13th century, talked about the Scandinavian nature of the towns in the Northeast. And even today, many of the names of the places in the North that we treat as typically English are in fact Scandinavian. So while the House of Wessex was busy building a concept of the English, the people living in Northumbria, East Anglia, and the five boroughs were moving in an entirely different direction and the roots that they were setting down ran deep. Things were changing, and these changes weren't purely cultural either. The Scandinavian-influenced regions had powerful jarls and other nobles that reflected what was happening here. New dynasties were rising. And just like with the English nobility, these Scandinavian rulers had their own complex web of heredity and loyalties, webs that held significant military and political consequences. And so while Athelstan claimed to be the king of the English, and while he included the people who lived on the other side of Watling Street among that categorization of English, the actual people who lived on the other side of that street had plenty of reasons to disagree. They had their own identity. They had their own dynasties. They had their own succession system. They had their own kingdoms. And then the House of Wessex came in and interrupted all of it. Most recently, by Athelstan, who had conquered Northumbria. But the thing is that there were still members of that old dynasty. There were still claimants to the throne. And Olaf Guthrison, reigning as king in Dublin, was at the top of that pack. But that being said, Olaf had had a hell of a few years. Brunenburg was understandably a tough pill to swallow. He'd lost large numbers of his soldiers and had barely escaped on what we're told was a leaky little boat. And following that defeat, he seems to have had a fairly quiet year. And it looks like he was probably spending that year rebuilding his military force. After all, he was a Viking king, and you can't go a Viking without warriors. So in 938, the record of Olaf goes quiet, which means he was probably recruiting, perhaps rather forcefully. But things changed in 939. In a cascading chain of diplomatic and political failures, the whole Western world had exploded into war. The kings of France and Germany were fighting. England's navy was seen raiding the French coast for some reason. King Hulthaw of Gwyneth was aggressing on his neighboring Welsh kingdoms. Scotland was fast approaching a succession crisis with the aging Constantine and his nephew lining himself up to usurp the crown prince. Basically, Europe had jumped into a handbasket and postmarked itself to hell. But that was actually really good news for the Irish. Because following Brunenburg, they knew that Olaf's army had been weakened. And now, thanks to the complete chaos of the West, Olaf probably didn't have many allies he could turn to for support. 
so the Irish launched a rebellion against Olaf. And then they got their asses kicked. Sometimes rebellions don't work out. But Olaf was clearly hanging on by his fingernails. He was short on allies, he was likely short on men, and it's unclear how many more rebellions he could stave off. The fate seemed to be turning against him. But then Athelstan died, and the whole world suddenly opened up for him. See, Athelstan had been the one thing that had been standing between Olaf and the kingdom of Jorvik, and he was owed the kingdom of Jorvik by right. Going all the way back to when it was conquered by Halfdan, that claim had been in his family. And then when Halfdan died, the claim was inherited by Ivor. Later, Ragnald, son of Ivor, was the first to reconquer it. Then Citric, grandson of Ivor, inherited it. Then the claim fell to Guthrith, grandson of Ivor. Until finally, Guthrith died, and the claim went to his heir, Olaf Guthrithson. The path of succession was clear. Jorvik was his by right, and Athelstan had stolen it. But now with Athelstan dead, he could finally take it back. And so Olaf, the Viking king, returned to the campaigning life. And he left Dublin under the command of his brother, and began to make preparations for his campaign, likely alongside his cousin, Olaf Citrixen. And as what seems to be part of these preparations, he raided the region of Kildare. And that makes sense. Campaigns cost money. They require supplies and numbers. And so from Kildare, Olaf took the most valuable treasure they had. Their people. Dublin, his kingdom, was a slaving kingdom. And so by taking these people, he was able to turn the townspeople into money. It's recorded that Olaf seized over a thousand slaves in his raid on Kildare. But this was all just financing for his true goal. What he wanted was across the Irish Sea. Meanwhile, in England, Edmund likely wasn't aware of what was going on in Dublin. Instead, he was facing a radical series of changes in his life. He was just 18. He hadn't known his father very well. Edward died while he was still young. And Athelstan had been the one to take up that mantle raising him as if he were his own son. And now Athelstan was dead, and he was only in his early 40s, so this death was likely unexpected. But monarchy is a weird thing. Death isn't simply the loss of a family member. It's also an opportunity for promotion. So while Edmund was likely mourning the passing of his brother, he was also making preparations for his coronation. After all, he was next in line. And it appears that the Watanagamot approved of his selection, because on November 29th, just one month after Athelstan's death, Edmund, at the age of 18, was crowned King Edmund I of England, probably at Kingston-upon-Thames. And so there he was, in late November, coping with the loss of a parental figure and also a battle brother as they'd fought side by side at Brunanburh, and he was also being asked to take command of the Kingdom of England a kingdom whose armies were in tatters and whose navies were currently raiding the French coasts while presumably singing shanties and shouting yar. What Edmund had inherited was a shit show and he must have been wondering how he was going to fix all of this mess. And then, shortly after the coronation, a messenger came with news. A massive army had landed in Northumbria and at the head of it was Olaf Guthrifson, King of Dublin. He had come seeking the lands that only two years earlier, Edmund had defended alongside Athelstan. And they had won. But back then, 
England had an army, and they had a navy, and they had Athelstan. But now, Edmund had none of those things. He didn't even have the support of the people of Northumbria. Instead, the Northumbrians, his alleged subjects, had welcomed Olaf. Even the Archbishop Wolfstan of Jorvik, who Athelstan himself had appointed, had welcomed this king from Dublin. And worse, they proclaimed that Olaf, not Edmund, would be their king, and that they were re-establishing the kingdom of Jorvik. England, Athelstan's creation, and the culmination of the dreams of three generations of the House of Wessex, was broken in an instant. And there wasn't a damn thing that King Edmund can do about it. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and you can find all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.